Our text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. Blink and you'll miss it. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And this will be our verse for the next two weeks. Next week, we will come at it from a a devotional angle as we share communion together. This week, we're going to do a, a bit of digging more into the context around why does the Apostle Paul say these words? What is the context? So I will take you on something of the Apostle Paul's journey through Corinth, finishing here at 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I don't know if you know this, you possibly already do, but the book of Acts is is like a story. It's written like a story, it's narrative. And so from Acts 13 onwards, it's the story, the record of Paul's missionary journeys, pretty much. We went here, we went there, we did this, we saw that, this is what happened. I planted a church here, I moved on, I went back and visited the churches. And so if you follow Acts 13 onwards, you'll see all of that. And it's really good to bear that in mind because then when you look at the letters Paul wrote, you actually can trace back into the book of Acts where it all started. So his letter to the Corinthians, you can go back into Acts chapter 18 and it tells you about when he went to Corinth and what happened. And it's really, really helpful to know. So in Acts 17, it tells us Paul went to Athens. And then in Acts 18 verse 1, it says Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now, you can still go to Corinth today, but it is nothing like what it was in Paul's day. Uh, You can do a touristy thing and and follow a bit of Paul's footsteps and and that kind of thing, but it's nothing like it was in his day. In Paul's day, Corinth was a major city. Travel was not easy in Paul's day. And if, if you were a trader, you were totally dependent on ships to get your stuff around the world. There was no Amazon deliveries back in that day. Corinth was strategically placed. It didn't have one port, it had two ports. In fact, if you go there today, you can, you can see it. Corinth is built on a very narrow strip of land. It's four miles wide. It's very touristy now. And that strip of land was so strategic because it saved the ships sailing all around south-southern Greece, which was very dangerous. They'd come in one port, unload all the goods, take it across the four-mile gap and put it in a ship at the other side, and it linked them to Italy and the rest of the world. They've actually cut a canal through that now, and you can sail under it, and they've built a motorway over it and all sorts if you wanted to be bothered to go and see it. There were many religions in Corinth. It was a Roman colony, so many Roman soldiers retired to Corinth, and those who had served well were given land. So there was emperor worship. There were various cults from Egypt and Asia. There was a Jewish synagogue. And and if you go there today, they'll show you the tiniest remains of that Jewish synagogue. There were the Greek philosophers. They loved their philosophy. They loved the oratory. They loved rhetoric. If you can spot it, 1 Corinthians has a lot of rhetoric in it. Because Paul was using what they were used to. You'll see it in some of the rhetorical questions where he expects a no answer. And uh, anyway, we won't go into that. But all of that was there. And so it was a real spiritual cocktail. Corinth was dominated by a temple. If you go to Corinth today, you'll see a very, very big hill that overlooks the entire city. You can climb up that hill. On that hill, it's called the Acro Corinth, in Paul's day was built a temple. It dominated the city. It said, this is us. 
This is who we are. This is what we're about. And that temple was built to worship the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. The temple was home to hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes who serviced the Corinthian nightlife. Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality. The Soho of its day, worse. So much so that to Corinthianize, or if someone said, you Corinthian, it wasn't a compliment. It was a way of saying, you are living an immoral life. You're an immoral person to Corinthianize. Every year, the city numbers would swell by thousands as Corinth played host to the famous Ithmian Games. Second only to the Olympics, which was in neighboring Olympia. And the gamblers would come and it would, it would turn into a Las Vegas type place. Corinth was a thriving, buzzing, multicultural, pluralistic, urban center. Gordon Fee, who's made a, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar, made a life study of Corinth. He says, Corinth was the Las Vegas, the Los Angeles and the New York of the day. But what Corinth didn't have was a church. There is no church in Corinth, no Christian gathering, nothing. It's easy to lose sight of this, but the church as a whole had only been in existence for 20 years. Imagine that. Outside of Jerusalem, uh, Judaism, the gospel and the message about Jesus would be virtually unknown. Who would know? 20 years old. They knew nothing. So in Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens, and it's only 60 miles away from Corinth, some of the people there say to Paul in verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Well, you wouldn't get that today. Going into Corinth with these strange ideas in that culture and that mix was a daunting task for Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, Paul says this, I came to Corinth in weakness with much fear and trembling. Now I don't know about you, but there is something hugely encouraging about that. The great apostle Paul was aware of his weakness for the task. The great apostle Paul carried a sense of inadequacy. A feeling of being afraid. He went to Corinth and he was afraid. Can't imagine that of Paul, can we? Paul was feeling it so much that while he was in Corinth, it seemed like he was planning to do a runner. He was thinking of running away. And so God visits him. So Acts 18 verse 19 says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And God says to Paul, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And Paul stayed in Corinth for almost two years. One of his longest sessions anywhere. And he won many people to Christ, and he planted a church in that incredible place. But Paul did it with a real awareness of his weakness. Fear didn't stop him. Paul did it afraid. Paul stepped out in his weakness. And he was able to do it because he had been reminded of what he already knew. The great I am was with him. God's power would be made perfect in his weakness. And I'm here to tell you this morning that your sense of weakness, 
Your sense of inadequacy for the task does not rule you out. And it doesn't have to hold you back. You see, the God of the Apostle Paul, hallelujah, is your God too. He is the God of the immeasurably more. He's the God who has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Sometimes we are aware of our weakness. We go into the workplace. We go to a family event. We go to do a presentation. We go to make a bid. We go for the interview. We go for whatever it is. We face a situation and we're so aware of our weakness. I know I am. Sometimes we are afraid. Like the Apostle Paul, I know I am. But these things do not have to stop us. You see, when we step out, when you step out tomorrow morning, when you step out into whatever it is, whatever that mountain, whatever that valley, I'm here to tell you this morning, we do not step out on our own. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is with us. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world in Jesus' name. So the Apostle Paul, he's the founder of the Corinthian church. After two years of loving them, teaching them, pastoring them. Paul was their first pastor, the founder pastor. He moves away and he moves on to Ephesus. And a few years go by and Paul gets a visit from some members of the Corinthian church, some members of the congregation. A surprise visit. But it's difficult for Paul to hear what they have to say because they're telling Paul there are some serious issues with the church. So in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, My brothers, my sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you to the point where there is division in the church. And Paul is beside himself. How can, how can someone allow division to come through them? How can anyone be so immature that they would allow that? Paul later says, why not rather be wronged for the honor of his name? Division is in the community. It must not be in our community, for we are to be a light to the world. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur outside the church. So this delegation from the church at Corinth also hand Paul a letter. And in that letter is lots and lots of questions from the leadership of the church and the people of the church about what to do in this situation, what to do in that situation. What about food sacrificed to idols that then turns up in the marketplace cheap for sale? Are we allowed to buy it and eat it? It's been sacrificed to an idol. Should we? Shouldn't we? We're confused. Help us, Paul. And you'll see him address and answer that question. How do we live in a context that, where it's so strongly against God's values? So from 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the Apostle Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. So up to chapter 6, he's answering the stuff that's come from the visiting party. And from chapter 7 on, he's, he's answering the questions that they've brought in the letter. Now, it'd be really helpful if we had that letter, but we don't. We just have Paul's responses. It's like listening to one side of a two-way conversation when you read it. So from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 on, and, and if, you, if you've got nothing better to do, you can do what the scholars do. They'll look at Paul's answers and try to determine what the questions were. So that's some of you might have fun trying to do that. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 onwards. 
And in his responses in their letter, he, Paul talks to them about marriage, and he talks to them about sex, and he talks about spiritual gifts, and he talks to them about communion. And then in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, he talks to them about the collection. So they've obviously asked a question about the collection. How do we do it? What should we do? So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatians to do. When you gather on a Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So the backdrop to this is that there is a famine that has hit Judea. And the Jerusalem church is really, really feeling the pain of this famine. And the Jerusalem church was mostly made up of Jews. And given the animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles, Paul sees an amazing opportunity. An opportunity to show the difference Jesus makes with regard to racial barriers. And the church should always be taking a lead in these areas. So he calls upon the Gentile churches, the Macedonian churches and the Corinthian churches. And he says to them, take some offerings. And then I'm going to come with a delegation of people and people you choose from your church so it's all done above board and with integrity. And we will all go and we'll take the offering and we'll present it to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and we'll say with the love of God from your Gentile brothers and sisters. How amazing was that going to be? The Macedonian churches took Paul by surprise. They, They responded straight away. They started collecting, they started giving. But the Corinthian church, no. They were still talking about it. And so we get to 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and our verse. And Paul returns in those two chapters to the 1 Corinthians 16 collection that he started talking to them about. Because they've not done a thing. The Corinthian people have done nothing. They've not given, they've got nowhere. And it would seem that in some things the Corinthian Christians were good at talking the talk, but they were not good at walking the walk. They were still talking about giving, but they never got round to doing it. The Corinthians had been so boastful. And it probably came through the letter they wrote. You can kind of see it in Paul's responses. They boasted that they were spiritual And the evidence they pointed to was spiritual gifts. We are amazing at spiritual gifts. And that's why you get 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. Paul is speaking into something they've got wrong. They said we excel in spiritual gifts. We prophesy like nobody else. We speak in tongues. We speak the heavenly language. We speak in the tongues of men. But actually, we also speak in the tongues of angels. We are amazing at bringing heaven down. We are so charismatic. So in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, Paul says to them, look, that's great. Since you excel in everything, you excel in faith, brilliant. You excel in speech, wonderful. You excel in knowledge, fantastic. But see to it that you excel in the grace of giving. And there's a little play on words in the Greek. Charismata, grace gifts. The grace of giving, charis, grace. So excel in the grace gifts and excel in the grace of giving. You need grace for both. The Corinthian Christians made a big mistake. And it's a mistake that many Christians make today. They measured spirituality by giftedness. 
Look at us. We can speak in tongues. Aren't we spiritual? No, says the Apostle Paul. That is not the measure of spirituality. It is not the measure of maturity. You can speak in tongues stood on your head all day long. You can prophesy with an accuracy that draws breath from the crowd. But, 1 Corinthians 13, if you haven't got love, you're a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And even if you surrender your body to the flames and if you have faith that can move mountains and if you can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but don't have love, you are nothing. Paul tells us gifts and giftedness are not the measure of maturity or spirituality. Love is. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is there right in the middle. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. These, say Jesus in Matthew 22, are the greatest commandments. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, the whole of the Old Testament teaching comes down to these two things. Love God. Love people. And if you are excelling and growing in those two things, you're doing very well. What does love look like in my home? What does love look like in my marriage? What does love look like in my workplace at the moment? Or in my friendships? What does love look like for the people nearest and dearest to me who also happen to be the people who sometimes irritate and annoy the life out of me? What does love look like? Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. So I pray for you and me. I pray, Father in heaven, fill us with an ever-increasing measure of your Spirit. That we may love in the way that Christ loved us. The Apostle Paul brings really strong course correction to the Corinthians and As we do sometimes, when we hear the latest thing or hear a strong teaching on something, we veer in that direction and we leave something else behind. We kind of get out of balance dead easy. And So after everything he says about gifts and love in 1 Corinthians 13, he sums up how we should respond and what our attitude should be in 1 Corinthians 14.1. He says, follow the way of love, pursue love, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. It's both and. Grow in both. The gift of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, they're both of the Spirit. Both are evidence of the work of the Spirit. The Corinthians were only interested in the spectacular. They said the spectacular is a manifestation. It shows us the presence of the Spirit. No, says Paul. So is a loving response in a challenging situation. That too is a manifestation of the Spirit. So Paul tries to encourage the Corinthians to give. It's great, he says. You're excelling in so much, but excel also in this grace of giving. And he wants to teach them a bit more. And in teaching them, he's teaching us. And so he goes on in his challenge and he does what I don't think I would ever dream of doing. He compares their giving to another church. Imagine that. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 6, Paul says, look, the Macedonian churches, 
They are in the midst of incredible trial. They're actually going through persecution at the moment. The Macedonian churches, they don't have a port. They're not a thriving trade center. They are poverty stricken. They have so little. Yet they surprised us. They really took us by surprise. Because out of that place of trial... Out of that place of poverty, they gave generously. And that, that surprised us, said Paul. Not only did they give generously, but they gave, the text says, with great joy. And to us, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, it was an evidence of the grace of God in their lives. Because it only because of a work of God and the grace of God that we can worship and give from the place of trial and difficulty and struggle. And that, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, is the kind of giving that gets God's attention. How sweet, how beautiful the aroma when a person gives out of that difficult place. When a person gives that sacrifice of praise. In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, Paul says, look, the Macedonians gave to the project, but they made it very, very clear. They said to us, it's not just about the project. We are giving to Jesus. Our giving is first and foremost, primarily, we're giving to him. In other words, giving is an expression of worship. It's an act of worship. Giving is a heart issue. It's a lordship of Christ issue. Paul wasn't saying that the Macedonians were going to give a big amount. They probably wouldn't. The Corinthians would probably give more. But out of that place, relatively, relative to what they had, they gave with joy. And they gave generously. Well, Paul hasn't finished with challenging the Corinthians. He's got one more thing to throw at them, to teach them before he moves on. So he says to them, and by the way, giving is connected to blessing. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul is not saying here that if you give, God will make you rich. He's not saying that. He is saying that there is blessing in giving. And that can include material blessing. But the real point of the passage that Paul is making, he's saying, look, God will bless you. He can pour blessing in your life, but he pours blessing in your life so you can be a blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing. When God pours blessing into your life, don't be a dam. Don't be a dam that holds it all up. Be a channel through which the blessing flows. And then in 2 Corinthians 9.12, Paul points us to the ultimate motive and the ultimate aim of our giving. He says this, Your giving will result in many expressions of of thanks to God. When I turn up at that Jerusalem church with this offering, when I say to those Jerusalem Christians, we know you're suffering, we know you're struggling, but your Gentile brothers and sisters, we've given. When they hear the Macedonian churches have given and the Corinthian churches, they are going to burst into praise and worship. 
They're just going to begin to start to give glory and honor to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, the goal of giving is not that we get something. The goal of giving is that God gets all the glory. The goal of giving is that his name will be held in highest honor. Well, as I come to a close, Paul is about to move on to another topic. He's done everything he can. He's taught all he can think. He's encouraged the Corinthians to give. And then it's as if a final thought shoots into his mind. Before he passes on to the next topic, he offers no explanation. He just hangs it out there as the ultimate motivation for all that we do. He simply says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It kind of feels like it doesn't fit. It kind of just throws it in there. And it's like it's popped into the Apostle Paul's mind and he's saying, Hey, all this stuff I've been telling you is good, but reflect on this for a few minutes. Reflect on his gift. Reflect on what he has given us. Reflect on his sacrificial giving. The gift of his son, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. The one who bore our sin in his body on the tree. The one who took our debt that was stacked up so high against us we couldn't see the light of day. He's the one who took it away, nailing it to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. The one who's buried our past. The one who is with us today. The one who gives us hope for tomorrow. So we can cry out, it's Christ in you. The hope of glory. I think the hymn writer captures the gist of what Paul is trying to say. When I survey the wondrous cross. Which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So we pray. I'll ask the musicians to join me now. We're going to sing a final song to help us exalt Jesus. But I pray for you and me. I pray, Father, help us to never lose sight of however inadequate or weak we feel. You are the God who is with us in Jesus' name. You are the God who is for us. And if God is for us, no one and nothing can be successfully against us. Help us to be the first to reach out across man-made barriers. Help us to grow in what it means to love one another, to love God and to love our neighbor. Thank you for the many blessings you pour into our lives. Help us to be a channel of blessing. Help us not to be people who hoard it up, who block it up. Help there to be a flow through us to others. Help us to be a people who will excel in the grace of giving. May we worship you with all that we have and all that we are. And may we never lose sight of the indescribable gift of your precious Son. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Let's stand together, friends.